Okay, so this is Acts chapter 4. Um, and we've just been going through the book of Acts. <coughs> and just for a few minutes tonight, let's look at a few verses. And when I'm gone uh, next week, so we got Sean and Neil and Wes and HD just all going to be sharing. So I'm going to just deal with the difficult text of Acts chapter 5 where people die <laughs> in the first church so we don't so these guys don't have to handle that. <laughs> that won't be such an edifying service maybe. Uh, but in in John in Acts chapter 4 um, verse 32 and I'm reading from the the uh, <coughs> the English Standard Version here. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Um, Acts 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the, apost- by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll just stop there for a minute. Um, this is funny that we should be in this portion of Scripture because uh, this week has just been such a week of everyone on the team giving so much of their time, their energy. Uh, Neil today just worked hours on those pallets, um, you know, and people have been giving money and, and this has been, you know, and just been giving their time and their energy and prayer and support. And so this is in no way to chide anybody so I don't want you to feel that we're you know ask, expecting more from you but I'm just saying um, that uh, when we look at this first church in the Acts chapter 4 that it's really interesting to note that our culture um, our American culture or our western culture uh, for the most part um, really celebrates and elevates individual responsibility over over just community consciousness or community uh, cooperation. And uh, it's more of an individual um, um, mindset in, the, you know, in, uh, in our society rather than maybe where you would find in uh, Eastern cultures or uh, countries where they're hard hit, that there's more of a communal um, um, awareness. And so... Uh, in our culture, in our Western culture, um, in Western Europe as well, uh, or maybe just even Europe in general, uh, independence is viewed as a virtue. You know, being self-sustained. You know, I looked up this word today: pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Do you know where that came from? Exists. I, I don't. People don't know where it comes from. But in 1922, it was used by a poet. And I think it's from Texas, but it could just been from the pioneer culture. Because yeah. I think in Texas, what we really see here is just such a, you know, um, uh, self-sufficient culture. You know, like, I mean, that's the DNA here. I mean, this was a very hard place to live while the East Coast and the West Coast were just 
prospering, you know, back in the 1800s. And, you know, uh, it was still a lot of things were not developed in Texas. And it still was like, you know, people would come here and just work really hard and just pull themselves up out of, you know, and they were um, very independent minded. And this was this is looked at in our society as a virtue and um, and generally seen um, as if you're not independent, if you're not on your own taking care of yourself, then that's a sign of weakness in, in um, many times. And, um, and without the pressure to share or the, um, you know, without people putting the pressure on to share things, we just generally don't share. Now, the United States as a country um, is the most, and this is, I don't know who said this, statistics are always, you wonder who says these things and what's the political motivation behind them, but I kind of believe this one, that the U.S. or North America is one of the most charitable uh, regions in the United, in the the world. You know, we give a lot, you know, there's, uh, we give a lot around the world, I mean, charitable organizations, and so there's a lot of charity and a lot of giving here, and I think that's just because of our, um, you know, of our Christian basis background. And so um, if you look at the time in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, at this time it was very hard economically. Um, it was deteriorating because of, um, according to Josephus and other historians, that there was famine and political unrest. Uh, there was a lot of need. There was a lot of trouble. There was a lot of oppression as well from the Roman government on Ju- Jerusalem, on Israel. And so there was this, um, there's, there was this oppression, and there was this uh, unemployment was rising very quickly. People were losing their job, and survival for the early church meant interdependence, or just um, really body life, where people were laying down their <laughs> lives and they were laying down their their personal possessions. And so, um, a lot of the Jews that were unsaved. Jews that were not Christians were putting a lot of pressure on these new Christians uh, and really um, forcing them to work in some very un, um, unfavorable conditions. And uh, we see this um, in a lot of ways like it is today. Um, so this was the way it began in the first church. And it's interesting that God's greatest miracle and God's greatest work was started in such an environment of such great need, you know, and just in in poverty and just um, abject difficulty. And uh, Israel at the time, there was this incredible amount. You read the Gospels during the time when Jesus was walking. I mean, the incredible incredible amount of demon possession that was going on, demon oppression, uh, you know, the demonic forces. Because when you have religion without grace and without the finished work, when you have the law, uh, you know, and, and not the nature of, you know, the righteousness of God by faith, then it's just a, it's a fertile environment for just demonic activity because you have man trying to meet the un, unsatiable law that cannot be met. Um, and so... Um, you really saw just an amazing place here where uh, God began to work. And this was all happening in this, in and around the temple, which was just minutes from where the upper room was. And so um, 
you see really a very powerful thing going on with with believers in John 13, 35. You know, you just see this love that the believers had for each other. And Jesus said that this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And um, uh, I think that, and I, it's not my, my thinking, but I, I, we can observe that God creates seasons of great need <laughs> whether it's psychological or whether it's in our soul or whether it's financial or physical need uh, so that we can discover something, the love of God, so we can discover something that we could never produce ourselves. Because when we are weak, when we are weak, we are in a place where um, we get to experience the power of God. We get to experience the grace of God. We begin to experience the place where we say, God, I need you. And I like how, um, I don't remember who said that, I think it maybe have been Timothy Keller. He said that our brokenness and our weakness and our surrender to God is, attract, is attractive to God's grace. God's grace is attracted to our need. And when he sees us, and when he sees our brokenness, and he sees our helplessness, uh, that, uh, and, and, our, and, our, um, and our wants, but yet we don't, have the needs fulfilled um, that stirs up just the deep compassion of God in our life. And that's what the devil wants to hide from us, that he wants to hide from you and I, uh, the, the great love of God towards us as, as broken people. And if we can't, if we don't worship God out of our brokenness, then whatever we're doing is not true worship. Yeah. It has to be that because God only works with the broken vessels. Mm-hmm. If you think it's something that you're whole, then you're not really acknowledging your need for God and you only Yeah. You only have some religious mm-hmm. thing that you're a part of. Because they can't be used. Have you heard this? But God can't use things that are not, that are not broken. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we have to make sure that in Christianity, in our, in our message, that we're not preaching a message of attainment, you know, um, idealistic. We said this the other day, behavioral <laughs> modification. Mm-hmm. But preach a finished work. Like, hey, it's finished. Even though it's not finished, maybe in your experience yet, but that it would be, um, it's finished in your position, and and that's what worship is. I mean, I, yeah, and this is where the this is where the the church is at at this point, where um, that there was just a great need of just um, interdependence, and we see this in First Corinthians chapter twelve. 12 through 31. Um, And I just love these words here. It says in chapter 4, and great grace was upon them all. This reminds me of Luke 7. I think it's Luke 7 where Jesus is described as a young boy growing and there was great grace on him. And I think wherever there's great need, 
there's going to be great grace, right? And where there's not great need, there may not be great grace. Now, need doesn't necessarily have to be defined as I'm just an abject need all the time. And I, but it could be that I'm actually very, very fulfilled in a lot of ways, but I just know my own soul's need for God. And so, you know, we can't define need as, or we can't define spirituality as not always having everything that we need, because then that would be another form of religion, right? So, um, and so, and then we have, um, and so we just see this honesty here. We see, um, you know, and I think that the beginning of the church and the beginning of any work of God, and I think the beginning of what God, God is doing in our midst is, is this way that, um, that God uh, creates a circumstance where it's really got to be the body. Because when a church comes to a point where they are financially sustained and they no longer need the body, then it's now more of an organization mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and we lose something there. You know, we lose the anointing, we lose the power of God, we lose something. But I think that it is easier to, uh, as a leader or leadership, to be in a place where we're not so dependent and everything can be very predictable. And then we're calling the shots and we're in control and God's no longer in control. And I like what Leonard Ravenhill said. He's a pretty radical guy. He said, if God was to remove the Holy Spirit from the earth, would any of the churches know the difference on Sunday morning? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but that's, that's so right on because Jesus it is. said, you know, when Sunday returns, will the demon find faith? Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's not... I think it's true. I do. I think it's. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing how much we can do without God. Wasn't there the Chinese missionary <laughs> that came here? How much we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But is it blessed? Is it? And here's the here's the here's the benchmark. Here's the here's the litmus test. Are people that are in chains, in bondage in their life, in pain with burdens? coming to church, are they leaving with the same burdens or are they set free? You know? And in Isaiah chapter 10, it says that the anointing breaks the yoke. And one of my, my greatest fears as a preacher or as a speaker is that my message would be great, psychological, intellectual, emotional, whatever. But if it's not anointed, then people leave and there's been no, there's been no spiritual release in people's lives. And so... And anoint Christ did. I mean, Christ told the Pharisees, you know, he told them very pointed things like, um, you know, you can compass land and see, you can make one proselyte, and when you do, you make a twofold mortal child of hell in yourself. Yes. So they're doing the work, but it's not ordained by God. Yeah. They're actually leading people away from God. Yeah. And he looks, uh, or, or when they say, you know, on that day they will come and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesy in your name. He goes, I don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know you. And. So yeah, we can do so many things that look right if we're using our human judgment. But that's we're not the judge. Mm-hmm. And if God judges mm-hmm. that's when you know, is it going to be made out of wood hate stubble? Mm-hmm. Or is it gonna last? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I believe there's gonna be a, a a judgment seat of Christ. It's a what we call a bema seat. Mm-hmm. 
Abema, or how, however you want to pronounce it, and that is not a judgment of sin, but it's a it's a seat. And if you look at Greek culture and the Greek civil system, it was a seat of reward or recompense, mm-hmm. and it was a seat where, you know, like if someone was unjustly dealt with, they could go to this seat, and it was probably about this high off the ground. So when the judge was sitting on it, the individual standing was at eye level with the seated judge. And so there was that mutual understanding going on there. And this is the word that Paul used for the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. I know there are some Christian groups out there that really try to, um, that really try to say that's a new doctrine, but I think it's just something that we see in the Bible and Greek culture that that those days that we uh, suffer unjustly or we pour out and there's just never a thank you, that's where we are, that's where we are, that's, that's where it's going to be, you know. A seat of judgment, right? Yeah. But a judgment in the sense of like where um, justice is meted out, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, hey buddy. Um, I think when you look at this and Karl Marx read these verses and this is and this is where he got the concept of communism from but he he missed he just missed totally the spirit of God and he missed the spirit of Christ in the whole thing and he missed the key word love which was a self-sacrificial love and so what we see here is something very different than what the, our previous administration was saying when they were saying we've got to spread the, spread the wealth and shame on you if you have anything, um, because you got it unfairly. But um, here, this was a voluntary yeah. surrender. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and whereas in, in, in socialism and in communism, uh, it, it's, it is expected. It's not voluntary. And so that doesn't glorify God at all. My wife and I lived in former communist countries. I lived in a country that was communist for a while as a missionary. And, um, you know, there's, two, there's always two books. There's two exchange rates. There's, a, there's always two markets. Mm-hmm. Everything is dichotomous because when you don't have love, everything, is, everything becomes two-faced. You have the official bank rate, and then you have the black market rate. Mm-hmm. You have the official books for your company, and then you have the, un- the unofficial books with, with what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have people stealing from the government. Because people were telling us that the government steals from, from us. Why can't we steal? They were Christians, and they would steal from work. And, and they said, well, why can't we steal from work? And it's because it's stealing. And they said, well, they steal from us. And so, um, you know, uh, I like verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Um, we're going to talk about that Sunday, but... Uh, let's go down to Barnabas, for example. Barnabas here is just an amazing guy because um, everywhere he went, he just had this in- environment of edification. He was just building people up everywhere he went. You know, 
and Amplified it says that his name, which interpreted means son of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, since your husband's not here, we can talk about him. <laughs> I think that Sean's like that. Like yeah. wherever, you know, if you've ever been down or if you've ever been discouraged, like he'll just, he'll totally build you up. He'll so encourage, he's such an encourager and, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, I really appreciate that, you know, because he'll just always have something encouraging to say. And, and whenever you're around these types of people, you're going to get encouraged. You're going to be, you're going to have that, you're going to have a, uh, you're going to walk away empowered by God. And you're not going to be, you're not going to walk away um, from, you're not going to be, you're not going to feel like you're just bitten by a spiritual vampire, you know, with your life sucked out of you. And if you're in those kind of environments, those are toxic people that are stealing people's soulish energy because they don't have any of their own life going on in their own life. And so we got to guard our own. We got to guard our hearts from that, and not, and not allow. And just have our shield of faith up, and just say, my ministry towards, towards that person is one is unidirectional. I'm going to minister to them, and um, and I'm going to I'm going to um, uh, uh, control the narrative here so that um, they're not, you know, they're not stealing from uh, stealing from you. But that's the way that this church was is that there was so much God in their midst and so much God in their own fellowship and so much God in their, in their vertical. And this is what I think as a team, as a core team, we really got to guard this because um, when we, if we don't guard our vertical with God, if we don't stay filled, if we don't build ourselves up, then we start functioning out of the vacuum that's in our soul. You know, we all have vacuums. There's vacuums there that have been created because of just a the wounds of the world that yeah and 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 it's like yeah survival but in the kingdom of god it's like god's taking care of us and and god um doesn't necessarily want us to be living in survival mode but just waiting on him and um and so you know, I want to speak sometime about projections. It's a word that we use in our church, and it means just when a person receives a thought that's not from him, but from the atmosphere, from the demonic atmosphere, he receives a thought, and then that thought literally um, is becomes his thought in the sense of like, you know, um, okay, so so and so doesn't like me, or you know, they we just start getting weird thoughts about people, mm-hmm. and it's like we need to define that. And like it says in, in uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, chapter ten, to cast it down because it exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here, there was such a tight unit of love that um, that uh, there was no place for projections. Um, Barnabas, being a businessman who was really blessed, and he was a Levite by the way, and it's interesting to note that the Levites were not allowed to have lands; they were not supposed to have land in the promised land. But this man did, and he was not maybe an, uh, a practicing Levite. But it's interesting that by the law, he was not supposed to have land, but he did, and he had a lot of it. But what did he do? When love entered his life, when the love of God entered in the finished work, and he began to understand who he is in Christ, uh, that was just something that automatically happens. Like, you know, I know some pastors and some ministries will take advantage of these verses and say, you know, if you sell your house, you got to give us. You got to give us your the profit. I mean, there's just some outrageous stuff out there, and we've all heard it. It's just crazy stuff, and that's not biblical. 
and those men will stand before God um, to account for that. But, but here, um, Barnabas, an encourager, uh, just shows up and says, look, um, I'm bringing this, uh, verse 37, the prophets of a field, and I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet. And I was thinking about this today, that, you know, when people were giving, um, they were giving because they had been, and we haven't spent a lot of time on it, but up until this point, Peter preaches twice. And these are like loaded messages. And if you read it, and the, the historical understanding and the biblical scripture references and just the, the, the amazing insight that he had being just a fisherman, um, these people were so built up with God. They were so filled with God and so, so occupied with Christ that they were giving to Christ in the midst of the church. They were not giving it to the apostles. They were not giving it because of any other reason. They were just so in love with Jesus Christ. And I think that if we can always keep that in the forefront, that this is not, I'm not doing this because it's an organization. I'm not doing this, I'm not doing what I do because it's expected of me. I'm not doing what I'm doing because I have the means and no one else has the means. I'm not doing what I'm doing because I'm talented and no one's else talented to do it. I'm not doing things because I was asked, but I'm doing it because I'm so occupied with Christ who is in our midst in the book of Revelations. Remember in the book of Revelations, Christ is in the middle of the candlesticks. And I think about that picture, you know, the seven candlesticks. I mean, it can mean so many different things, but one of the meanings is, is that it's the seven churches, the seven churches throughout the church age, seven types of churches maybe. And here's Jesus in the middle of it. And here's Jesus in the middle of our little big thing, our little beginning. And I think if we make him great in our midst, that's the issue and we've succeeded, you know. I'm going to make mistakes. All of us are going to make mistakes. Sometimes we're going to come home, we're going to shake our heads, and we're going to be like, what was that all about? But if we just keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and make him great, then what will happen is, is, that, is, that, is that that's going to touch people's lives. That's what's going to speak to people. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and lifted up doesn't necessarily mean in super worship, but it means like if, I, if my crucified life, you know, on a cross where I laid down my life for the Father's plan, if that's lifted up. And, and I, I really think that what is missing in this Christian world is a cross-centered message where, where we lose our life. We lose, and it's not about us, and it's not about my accomplishment. It's not about me and my emotion. But it really is that goes to the cross, and then I lift up Christ, and then I just trust Christ for the results. For example, I was thinking... I was talking to a pastor years ago, old man, just an old man, and he had no retirement fund, zero. His church had nothing for him. He had nowhere to go. He was retiring, and um, he left. He had given his whole life to ministry. And this guy just had nothing. He had nothing. And his wife was there, and they had, a beautiful, they had beautiful kids. And they were pretty broke. And I just remember thinking, God, <laughs> I felt so bad for this guy. I was like, where is he going to go, you know? What's going to happen in his life? And I just remember that God opened, you know, his former assistant pastor who had moved to Florida, calls him up, says, I have a house for you. I'm paying the mortgage on it. I want you to live there in Florida. All you have to do is just, all you have to do is just pay for the electricity. 
It's yours as long as you need it. And it's like he moved down there. He got to retire in Florida. And I just remember this pastor gave everything, you know. And I thought, you know, this pastor made it about Jesus Christ in the ministry, and he didn't make it about what he could get out of it. If, you know, if we find... He used to be an amazing businessman before. He just pretty much gave it away. Yeah, he was very, very wealthy, and he gave a lot of his money to, you know, just to his church to keep it going. And But if we find ourselves someday elderly and maybe forgotten somewhere and we say I did so much for the church and I'm not I'm not even recognized no one's thanking me nobody even knows who I am I'm living here on just these conditions terrible conditions you know my prayer is is that I could just say thank you God that I had the opportunity to serve because it's all about Jesus Christ and in heaven the payback's going to be there and think about the woman that had the alabaster box you know and this was, we all just looked at it, we've studied it. We know that in Isagogics, it means that she had this family heirloom. And this was the, the great treasure of pride, great, you know, there was a, a great item of great price. And in a moment, she broke it and poured it out over Jesus' head because it was an item that once you open it, you have to use the whole thing. And it's not a thing you can put the cap back on and use it later and save it for later. It's like, just speaks about the laid down life that that here she is she pours it out but my thought is is what happened afterwards you know what is she's walking home she has this broken box everybody's gone home uh jesus is gone now she's by herself with this empty box and she walks back to her house and her family finds out all the emotions are gone all the fame and all, everything is just her and the empty box and what does she do now at that point? And I really believe that when Jesus said that what this woman did will be, it will be, it will accompany the message of the gospel everywhere. What does that mean? It means that when you and I lay down our lives for Christ's sake, and it's something that maybe we never get back. Maybe we, maybe no one ever pays us back. Maybe it's just whatever in this life. It that story will go with the with the story of the gospel in in heaven when we get to heaven i think there'll be an amazing timeline of just how the gospel just moved and we're going to see people like that that poured it all out and never got a single thank you and they didn't require it and i'm not saying this that i demand this from people because i don't i'm just saying that like that when we are filled with the love of god it's more about what can i do to bless Jesus Christ in the midst, you know, in, in the midst of just fallen personalities that sometimes, that sometimes are failing. <laughs> and we just make it about Christ. And this is what these guys, and this is what, this is what um, Barnabas did. I want to wrap it up with this. And I want to spend a lot of time on this, but it does, it does merit us to look at it. Ananias and Sapphira uh, show up and they probably heard about what happened. They probably heard that this businessman showed up, sold this land, gave it to the church, laid it at the apostles' feet. Probably, and they maybe were looking for some attention. Maybe uh, we don't know what their motive was, but do you know what their names mean in the Greek? Their names mean um, beautiful graciousness. If you take both of their names, put them together, it means beautiful graciousness. And it's kind of funny. It's just the epitome of hypocrisy here because you have people here 
that are embodying beautiful graciousness and they show up and that's that you know these are greek speakers and you know when you go overseas many many countries in europe the names of the people mean something you know and it's like beautiful graciousness and that's just amazing so beautiful and they must have been it must have been part of their legend i don't know but they they sell a property they as a married couple come up with this plan that they're going to keep back part of what was sold and um in uh you know give the impression that they're giving everything and they're not giving everything and i don't think that the problem here i don't think that the sin here was that they made money off of the land that they sold right. i think that's fine you know I think it's it's even fine that they didn't give the whole amount. Maybe they gave a small portion of it. That's between them and God. Sure. You know, it's not like we can't say that, you know, that that they were greedy and maybe they were and that they were keeping it back and they died because of that and we can't say that, but we what we can say is is that um is that um that they kept back something. And they kept back. This is the Greek word um uh nosfizo, which is in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, they presented their gift to the apostles, exactly as Barnabas had done in chapter 4. But they kept back part of it. Do you know where we see that word in the Greek, in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament? We see that word kept back in another um, key event. Mm. Can you imagine? Can you guess what that is? With the sheep and salt? No. Although maybe it is, but I'm thinking of one. He spurred the best of the sheep. Who got something and hid it and kept it and didn't tell anybody oh. about it? Oh. Uh, Achan. Achan. Yeah. It's the same word in the, in the, in the Greek oh. Old Testament that's used oh. to keep back. And that, you know what, that affected the entire community of, oh. the, of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had just had an incredible victory at Je- um, Jericho, and they went in their own strength in I- Ai. And that was probably the first problem is that they said, well, we don't need to all go together. We just need to send a few because, man, we are, we are good. We just mm-hmm. took down Jer- Jericho and we're going to take down AI. So they just sent a few. They, were, they had already entered the, the, the battle in their own strength. Mm-hmm. And so they were already starting to think carelessly. Mm-hmm. And they weren't functioning as a body, as a community, but they were functioning in, in this independent, self-sufficient mindedness like, and so when we start thinking like that, then we get the Aiken type of thinking, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to keep back because I deserve some of this. You know, I deserve some of this. And you know what? Like, like and, I, and I don't condone adultery. And just listen to what, hear me out first. Remember when David took Bathsheba and killed her husband? Mm-hmm. And remember one of the things that God said, like, have I not blessed you? And could you have not asked me? And that was one of the things that God said. It's like, I think if there's something that, and I'm not saying that we pray to, you know, we're not praying for adultery. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, that there are things, this is what happens. If we have a desire and a want that we don't surrender to the cross, it turns into lust. Mm-hmm. It'll turn into, and what is lust? It's just the, un, it's the illegal mm-hmm. appetite for something that we, that we won't wait on God for him to give to us. I'm not saying we can't like maybe there are dreams in our life where we say hey I would really like to see that happen and we say but God you got to do that 
And then it's no longer lust. It's like, okay, I'm surrendering it at the cross. Mm-hmm. Achan had lust for the Babylonian garment and the, and the, and the stuff. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira had lust for attention in the new church. And so the point I'm making here is, is that um, the big point here, the main point is, is that they were filled with, their heart was filled with something other than the Holy Spirit at that moment. Uh, Ananias uh, allowed Satan to fill their heart with a lie. <clears throat> now, we don't teach that demons can possess the believer because I don't believe that that could happen because if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that how can a demon uh, co-dwell in the temple of the Holy Spirit that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit? And so what I'm saying here is that it could happen is that the devil could literally put something in a person's heart, an idea, a thought, that if we don't cast that down, it could become, uh, it could become something that is going to deceive us down the road. Well, don't, and, don't you think, here's the way I've categorized for myself, is that whenever God asks us to do something, what is present at that moment is both everything we need for success and everything we need for failure. They're present there at all time because together because we're human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of when I look at Ananias and Sapphira, what I kind of see is they saw what Barnabas did. They thought, man, that is a really great idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got this land. We can do the same thing. And, and maybe at that moment they were really intended to sell the whole, mm-hmm. you know, sell it and give all yeah. the money. But then they sold it. They got the money. They went. Well, we don't really have to give all of it. Mm-hmm. And the reason they thought that, and we're able to be taken away by that, in, in my mind, is because God never asked them to sell that and give it to Absolutely. the Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. They just thought that was a good idea on their own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, if they had been following the Lord, yeah. God would have asked them to do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They might have built a church on that land. Yeah, you're right. Very I, so when God says do this, we yeah. have to also know, okay, God, I need you to safeguard me at this moment and every moment moving forward. Mm-hmm. The antithesis of what you want is present in me because mm-hmm. the flesh is weak. Mm-hmm. That's Romans 7. Yeah, you're right. To do good is is in me, but to also sin is present with me. Like He was living... But he was living in that presence of failure and that presence of the flesh until he understood Romans 8, 1, where there's no condemnation. And then another law took over in his life, and it was the law of the spirit of life that lifted his plane off of the, you know, over the... But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And there's so much that we could learn from Ananias and Sapphira. And, and just even the fact... I mean, the question is, do you think that God was too harsh? Why do you think God was so harsh with this? That'd be my question. I mean, because he's just whatever he does, yeah. Right. So I mean, I can't. I don't know why. But, you know. Why do you think that God just did that like that? Why? Why do you think? Why doesn't He do it today? Maybe you know. He does. Maybe He does. I mean, I see. We see things. We've yeah. all seen things where yeah. lives are destroyed or yeah. someone. You know. I mean, I, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen people. I was talking to him one day, and that was the last time. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I had a gentleman one time, I told him, yeah, 
he said he accepted Christ, and I'm not doubting that he did, but he was also battling with a, an addiction, trying to get through that. Remember, he got a check uh, when I was at the mission, and went to get him his check, because the month before he wasted his, his funds, I went to get him his check, and I handed it to him, and he grabbed it, and I kind of held on to it. <laughs> and I told him, I said, Malcolm, this is your last chance. He just looked at me. He said, I know. And he went and he used his money for drugs. I got run over by a car. He was dead. Oh, wow. That same night. And so I see, I mean, that, to me, that was just, that was not a judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would not want that to, to happen to anybody. Yeah. Because he had his choice. But he, he knew. He knew. He looked on my eyes and said, I know. This is my life. I know. Yep. So I think it does happen today. Yeah. But in Amplified, it says that, and with his, so, um, but a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge and convenience, he kept back and wrongfully appropriated. Like, I think the wrongfully appropriated is just what you said. Like, it wasn't what God wanted them to do. It wasn't that it was wrong. The act itself wasn't wrong. But that's, like, that's not what, you know, what God was leading them to do. And it's, I'm thinking about um, Saul, right? Saul, like God said that obedience is better than sacrifice, right? That's what I'm thinking here, that it's not, it's not that the act of what they did was wrong, but with Saul, I mean, what did he do wrong? He, he, he slain the sheep, right? And I think some of the army, right? Of the Philistines or someone, right? But he kept, he kept some. He kept the best, right? And he was like, "Well, I did everything right." And then, and then, what did Samuel said? You just lost your kingdom, right? right? So, like, I think this is the, this is how I would Mm. think about this passage that it's it's more about about obedience than sacrifice. Like, they made the sacrifice thinking, well. We are just going to make it public here. You know, this is what Barnabas did, and we are going to just be the same same way here. But I don't know what the obedience meant in in their case. Well, uh, the first thing that we get to is not to lie and say this is all of it. Yeah. Well, you see that Peter qualifies when she comes in a few hours later and says, and he asks her, gives her a chance, gives her a chance, and and. you know, like here, the, the what's happening is is that Satan fills her heart and his heart, and it's a word there that's used in the Greek that is in contrast to what we read about the Holy Spirit filling in chapter two, verse four, chapter four, verse eight, and verse thirty-one. You see this that the Holy Spirit is filling them, filling them, filling, and it means to be filled, so there's nothing else there left. And uh, and so I think that at some point, Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira. Uh, started functioning out of their their de- depravity and out of their deficiency and out of their wounds or out of their needs in their soul instead of instead of being filled with with the promises and filled with God. Sometimes you know we just and this happens to us every day. We have to get by ourselves, even if for even if it's for a minute, and just get filled with God and say, God, fill me with Your Holy Spirit, because if I you don't, I'm going to start functioning out of my out of the hole in my soul. And I'm going to be giving people my flesh. And that's the crucified life. That's the powerful life of living. And that's what God blesses. And, and um, 
And so why does God do this? I think that the issue here is the heart that people are giving to God and not to men. You know, I could give something to the church and God's going to test that. God has to test all of our... Remember how all the offerings had to be tested and they, had needed, to be, they needed to be inspected? They needed, they, there was a very strict rule on how to give an offering. And that's the way it is with, with God. Whenever we serve Him, there is, it, it, because it's no longer the law, it's grace... It's even that much more, like that much more, um, uh, what? Strict. Strict. Mm-hmm. That, that like God is like saying there can be no flesh in this gift. And if there is, I'm going to test that. And it's going to be either, either I'm going to get offended. Like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm serving and, and this, and, you know, I didn't get my way. And so I'm offended now. And this happens in churches all across the world. People serve on their own terms, mm-hmm. and then and it happens to us. It happens to me, it, it, and and God calls it out, and then we have a chance, like you were saying, like you know, uh, I can be offended, or I can say, okay, flesh, okay, that's going to the cross. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lord, and I'm bringing it to you. You be glorified, and and at that point, we you know we're good with God. And so, what's the result? And we'll close with this, uh, uh, chapter five, verse eleven. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. And so great fear came. And this is really the purpose here, I think, is that whenever there is sin in the church, and that grieves us whenever we hear the, I mean, when we hear stories, when we see things happen, when we are even in the midst and we see it happen in front of us, or we hear about it across town, it is grieving. I mean, there's nothing sadder to hear from me like I had heard something about a, a church um, here, and um, and I said to the pastor, you know, um, I said, you know, did the church make it? And they, he said yes. And I said that's that's wonderful news, you know. And why does that happen? Because God through through the the untimely and shocking death of not just one but two people. A married couple dropping to you know it says it says that they fell and they breathed their last breath, and that was it. <laughs> They're dead. I mean, can you imagine how shocking that is? And it's like, what does that do? Well, it just creates a fear that God really means business, that we are not this is not a game, that that this is, you know, uh if our God is a consuming fire, mm-hmm. and there's a side of God that if we function outside of grace outside of faith, if we're functioning outside of his unconditional love, we are entering something that is just a no zone that the result is only death. And, and so like, um, I just think that my opinion is, is that, that God allowed this to happen because he needed to purge the church and teach the church that, um, that uh, this is going to be a powerful move of God and there can be no lying in the heart and it needed to be done. And then we see right after that happens, God promotes the church. God blesses the church. We see it grow, We see another like huge group of you know people getting saved and coming into the church. And we see the move of God. And so whenever we see these shocking things happen in a church, don't live in the grief of it. Don't live in the sadness of it because that could be really tear us down. We need to say, you know what? I'm glad that happened. That's part of our promotion as a church. That's part of the work of God and, and something beautiful is going to come out of this. The church is going to come through it in, a, in like 
purer than it was before. And and remember, it's never people. It's just, you know, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but but it's spiritual warfare. We just have to, every day, just remind ourselves that it's not personalities, it's not flesh, but it's something, it's something higher. And after this happens, we see people just living in just this, just like, this awe of, of God and and God was just remember when Uzzah put his hand on the ark mm-hmm. and that just speaks volumes to me that means here's a man that got familiar mm-hmm. thought that God wasn't able to take care of himself mm-hmm. that he was in a box and he had no hands and that he had no feet and I think that that um, whenever I myself and I've been in church splits before I've been in three of them I counted them um, whenever I've seen people put their hands on something that is just is like God is doing something and they get their natural opinions in there and they get their natural, you know, instead of thinking with God, like it says in, Isaiah, in Amos 5, it says don't say a lot in the day when it's evil, you know. Don't do a lot of, we can't do a lot of talking because that's just a natural mindset. And we just get this, I don't know, maybe this is just too heavy to talk about, but I'm just saying that like, God is, you know, whenever whenever we think that God can't handle himself or God can't do it, then we're going to get ourselves involved with something that that just is going to really injure us and and um because uh Uzza, his fatal mistake was familiarity with with God and and when that happened everybody began to their respect and their awe of God returned I just think that, you know, I was I was biking today thinking, like, I wonder, like, you know, when churches go through all of these conflicts on the inside, what would happen if just everybody just got on their face before God and just stopped talking, just got on their face before God for a week and just been in the awe of God and just in the presence of God and just, huh? Nineveh. Yeah. That's what would happen. You know, they, they all repented. Yeah. You know, they were saved. And, and because of the thing, yeah, that's what would happen. Yeah. Just like, you know what, God, we, you know, let's just get, just get so in awe, just live in the awe of God. Because when we're living in the awe of God, we're not living in sin. That's what Psalm 4 says. And it's like, that's what I think, that maybe there's a lot of things that we can't answer. There's a lot of questions you can't, why did that happen, and who did that, and why, you know, all that stuff. It's like, let's, if we live in the awe of God, I'm not saying that there can't be discussion and communication, of course, but... I'm just saying that, like, instead of living in, in, in self-analysis and, and human analysis of things, let's live in just the divine presence of God. And, you know, and anyway, that's that's all that, that was on my mind. Any thoughts about that? Or? I'm just thinking that this was something, because it says here in Amplified that, that they wrongfully appropriated some of the proceeds. And you know how God is so specific, but, like, if you are doing something with me, you cannot give me... You know, you cannot put part of the proceeds into something that is iffy or not okay and give me the rest. Like, I, I want the best. I want it all. I want the best. And I wonder what this wrongfully appropriated some, because they wrongfully appropriated some, and then they gave the rest to God, right? And then um, he says here... Um, as long as it remained unsolved, was it still not in your own? Like, he didn't have a problem with this being their own, with they owning it. Like, you, can, you, have to, you could have kept it. The problem started when they 
they sold it and they did something wrong with that one portion and they thought that oh we'll just and then we'll, we'll give the rest to God right mm. it's almost like so it could have a different way in contaminated kept the same amount and given the same amount to the church if they had just said God what do you want to do and he said okay give this and keep that that would have been a fine yeah but instead they did it on their own and through the flesh and he said I don't want to yeah, yeah, and I'm just thinking like, what does yeah. it mean wrong, wrongfully appropriate? I would like to know what it means. Like, could you can you check it out later? Like, well, it could have been wrongfully appropriate for something. Is you might have stolen it, or you might have uh, ripped somebody off to get it, or cheated them, or something. Oh, isn't the appropriate something to, to put it towards? No, appropriate is where you get it. You, oh, you, you get it. No, appropriate, you take it. Well, there's this thing in, in church accounting called misappropriation of funds. <laughs> and like, you know, like if someone oh, gives a gives a gift and there's a memo saying this is for, you know, new chairs for the you know church or whatever, I don't know. And it goes towards, I don't know, the pastor's new car, then that's, that is... That is misappropriation of funds, and it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it can be prosecuted. And since you have not so, sent the light to man, playing false and showing herself utterly deceitful, but to God. So this wasn't about them selling the land and having the money. It was about them lying to man and to God. Yeah. It wasn't in the oh, you know, I own something and I gave it away and. You know, I, it wasn't about them keeping portion of it. It was about them lying about it. And here they are in the first church. Like I just remember when we were in Cyprus. Like, you know, it's two thousand later, two thousand years later. But you walk, you walk that land, those streets, like where Paul and Barnabas were. Not, not even Jesus. It wasn't even in Jerusalem, right? It was like just knowing that Paul walked there and Barnabas walked there, right? And you just felt like the 2,000 years never happened. Like you were there. And, and there was this sense of, like we were looking at each other with Chris, like, oh my gosh, God is just, I, like God is so on the move here. And I remember this feeling of, you know, we would meet these little churches, these Iranian churches, and there was a revival going on in Iran. Um, I think it's still going on, but at that time, the Iranians would come to Cyprus because they, they, could, they could get out of Iran and they could go there for three weeks or three months, right? Um, and they would knock at churches' doors and they would just say, can you tell us about Jesus? I mean, that's what, we, you know, we had a dream. Like, we had a dream about Jesus. Can you tell us more about this Jesus man? Because we've seen him in a dream. I mean, literally, I mean, like, that's like, that's like first century church, right? Like, and there was such an awe. I had such an awe that God was so on the move. In spite of churches doing their own thing and looking at the color of curtains, like God was on the move in Iran. And he had, he had a way, right? So if there was such a move in, in this situation, right? After the Pentecost and... Um, Peter preaching a couple of times, and someone comes and tries to be deceitful. Like, 
I think God would want to protect the church. I'm almost feeling like this was to protect the church from deceitful people. Like he didn't expose them exactly what it was for, but I just feel like their heart wasn't pure. Yes. Yeah, so, anyway. so when you look at when you look at what Peter says, he says you've lied unto not only men but unto God, and then then they drop dead. That is just showing it wasn't Peter killing them; it was right. it was God doing it. But um, the result of it was, um, you know, fear and great respect for God. But too, you know that First uh, John five sixteen talks about the sin unto physical death and that's a that's a sin in a person's life that is just it continues and continues and continues and there's just never any confession or repentance and it just leads them into event God just eventually takes them home because you know it's just that's just divine discipline it's the end of a long process of discipline and like you were saying you were actually you were telling this guy this is your this is the last chance, and that maybe was just the Holy Spirit speaking through you to that guy that this was the night was he was going to die and and he said I I know it I've I've known people too that that have I know that God just took home early because they just were living in but anyway the, the to like to end on a on a different note here, like that, like, like, like we are like Barnabas. We're just filled with this God's beauty. I'm just like, you know, I'm just so amazed that Jesus in our midst. And that's what I want to make great in our, in our midst. Jesus is great. God's plan is wonderful. The Holy Spirit is in our midst. And Make it, make it, just paint a big picture of God, and and uh, otherwise it's just we're we're meddling with, with with people, trying to change people, and that's not our calling. Just preach a big Christ, and and if we were obedient to that as a church and as a nation, um, this is another topic, but anyway, a lot of issues might you know may be resolved. So. But anyway, it's it's. I want to just finish because it's it's eight thirty, and um, so let's close in a word of prayer.